Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today we're going to take a deep dive into Heaven's Gate one of the most notorious UFO cults that emerged in the 1970s and 80s, recruiting hundreds of members to give up their former lives and follow their leaders, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, over the course of two decades. Vanessa will be commenting on the relevant psychology throughout the episode. Now, please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. Part of our test of faith is our hating this world, even our flesh body, enough to be willing to leave it without any proof other than what we have come to know. We don't care to cling to the life of this body until it naturally gives up. We don't care to be aborted by the body that we're wearing. We care more to abort it in proof to our Heavenly Father, that we're ready to leave this place. In several videos released by Heaven's Gate to spread their gospel to the public, Marshall Applewhite, a.k.a. Doe, continually relayed this idea, that one's earthly body was merely a vehicle that must be exited to evacuate this earth and ascend to the kingdom level above human. But to the average person who came across these tapes when they were first released in the early 90s, Applewhite's preachings just seemed like the rantings and ravings of a madman. Nobody aside from his 38 loyal followers took his words too seriously. That is, until the chilling images emerged of a scene from one Rancho Santa Fe mansion on March 26, 1997. They considered this their temple. 
A shocking discovery in a mansion in the hills of San Diego. It appears to be suicide. More than three dozen members of a religious group calling itself Heaven's Gate are found dead inside. There were 39 bodies. Each of them were, was either on a mattress or a bed or Police a Police and neighbors aren't sure what to make of it. Let me just say this is the worst in terms of the numbers of people at, in one place at one time that I've ever uh, witnessed. The last thing we expected was to come out here and hear about something like this. It is soon learned that Heaven's Gate was part of a doomsday sect that supported itself through computer-related business. The group's leader was a former opera singer and music teacher named Marshall Applewhite. An unusual individual. Applewhite was among the dead. The sect had preached that spaceships would visit the Earth and take members to Heaven. Those who died in the hills of San Diego believed that they would rendezvous with a spaceship trailing the Hale-Bopp comet. It was one of the largest mass suicides in U.S. history. It was actually the largest mass suicide to ever take place on U.S. soil. After police received an anonymous tip from a former Heaven's Gate member, they discovered the bodies of 39 individuals, all neatly lying in their bunk beds. The dead all wore identical black shirts and sweatpants, brand new black and white Nike Decades shoes, and armband patches that read Heaven's Gate Away Team. A square purple cloth placed over their faces and torsos. Each one of the dead was also discovered with a $5 bill and three quarters in their pockets. It was standard practice for members to carry a $5 bill in case they were stranded and needed transportation, and three quarters if they needed to use a payphone. But on this occasion, it isn't obvious why they carried these items, since they clearly wouldn't be needing them. The Heaven's Gate members all ingested a lethal dose of phenobarbital, mixed with applesauce or pudding, and washed down with vodka. There was a media frenzy surrounding the suicides, and the group that was once disregarded as a small class of eccentrics that held some peculiar beliefs was now being identified as a dangerous cult. At the time, everyone seemed to be asking themselves why this happened, how this happened. How could it be that 38 people followed one man to an early grave in the name of a made-up and seemingly absurd ideology? In this episode, we'll attempt to find the answers. But before successfully attracting a sizable following, when we left off in our story last week, Nettles and Applewhite had only finally attracted their very first loyal follower in 1974. Sharon Morgan was an intelligent woman who left behind her profession as a real estate agent, her husband, and most shockingly, her two children in Houston to go on a spiritual journey across the Southwest USA, following Applewhite and Nettles, or the two, which at that time was how they referred to themselves. And Sharon they referred to as Chela, which they told her meant student in Sanskrit. She found Applewhite to be spellbinding as he would sit with her, nettles by his side, and lecture for two to three hours each day. But, as Sharon recalls, any time she raised questions regarding their theological interpretations, she was met with defensive irritation and hostility from the two. Mrs. Morgan also took issue with their ethics concerning money. As we mentioned last week, with no money of their own, the two often skipped out on their bills for food and lodging. This troubled Sharon, who occasionally let the two use her credit card. Still, she felt guilty and conscience-stricken over the stealing. But when she raised her concerns to the two, they explained they did not obey the laws of this earth, quoting the biblical verse Thessalonians 5.2, the Lord will be as a thief in the night. Just four weeks into their mission, Sharon was feeling lonely and guilty over abandoning her family. 
She was very much looking forward to visiting an old friend at their next stop in Dallas. But when she arrived at her friend's place, they were not alone. Sharon's husband grabbed her and threatened to have her committed. Her two-year-old daughter ran up to her and hugged her, while her six-year-old Kimberly stood back and with tears flowing from her eyes, she asked, will you stay? Yes, I love you, Sharon told her daughter. Sharon Morgan went back home, but she says she still had second thoughts. At times, she feared that she disappointed God and relinquished her place on the next level above human. And just like that, the two were back at square one, not a single follower, and things seemed to only get worse. A few days later, the two were arrested and charged with credit card fraud by Texas police, who were alerted about the two's con by Sharon Morgan's husband. Though the charges were dropped, a background check showed that Applewhite had a warrant out for his arrest in St. Louis for stealing the car he was currently driving, a Mercury Comet that he picked up as a rental nine months prior. For the next six months, Marshall Applewhite sat in a Missouri jail cell in a state of intensive introspective and study. This was a crucial period for Applewhite in terms of the future success of Heaven's Gate. But at the start of his sentence, it seemed like Applewhite was preparing to hang in the towel on this mission of his, having updated his resume for a new teaching position. But he soon gave up on giving up and spent the majority of his sentence reflecting on the ideas he was preaching. He thought about the time they had spent with Sharon and considered many of her challenging questions. Now he was manufacturing the answers. He was turning away from occultism and mysticism as source material and focused more heavily on science fiction and evolution. During his jail term, Applewhite used the time to fully flesh out the tenets and core principles of his ideology. The ideas Applewhite devised during this time would eventually attract hundreds of followers over the next two decades. Many came and many went, but Applewhite and Nettles would ultimately succeed in convincing others of their truth. Many were so convinced they abandoned their children and forfeited all earthly pleasures to join Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite on their mission. In a statement of beliefs penned from his jail cell, Applewhite outlined the cosmic vision he and Nettles shared, using the metaphor of a caterpillar to convey one of his central teachings, which, as the New York Times put it, got to the heart of the folly of mainstream religions. The idea that a good life leads to heaven is as silly as believing that if a caterpillar dies a good caterpillar, it will mysteriously awaken in a rose blossom and live there forever with the king butterfly. People, like caterpillars, must go through a chrysalis stage, overcoming their humanness in preparation for life in the next level. This was a powerful metaphor that spoke to so many eventual followers who felt they were caterpillars yearning to become butterflies. Such a transformation, wrote Applewhite, required a teacher. Jesus was one, sent by his father in ancient times. But 2,000 years later, in 1974, two more had been sent. Like many self-proclaimed prophets, Applewhite predicted in his writings that a visible demonstration of their truths would come within months. Just like Jesus, Applewhite wrote that the two would be killed, then resurrected in a cloud of light. That cloud, he wrote, is what humans refer to as a UFO. Our story will continue in a moment, right after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to cults. Many early recruits of Heaven's Gate knew Applewhite and Nettles as the two. But others, including the media, preferred the UFO two. UFOs, unidentified flying objects, are supposed spacecrafts operated by extraterrestrial life. UFOs, or flying saucers, have become part of mainstream American culture since the science fiction boom of the 1950s. Since then, many people claim to have sighted a UFO floating in the skies above or to have encountered extraterrestrials in a UFO abduction. Yes, we've all heard of UFO sightings. According to a 2015 Ipsos poll, as many as 45% of Americans believe extraterrestrials have visited Earth. One former U.S. president even made such a claim. Quote, There were about 20 of us standing outside a little restaurant, I believe a high school lunchroom, and a kind of green light appeared in the western sky. This was right after sundown. It got brighter and brighter, and then it eventually disappeared. It didn't have any solid substance to it. It was just a very peculiar-looking light. None of us could understand what it was. That was Jimmy Carter when he was governor of Georgia in 1973, the same year that Applewhite and Nettles began their spiritual journey. Many sociologists now view the post-war UFO craze as reflective of the Cold War paranoia, which consumed the American populace. Fear of a foreign invasion or a spy watching from up on high was directed at Soviets and extraterrestrials alike at this time. But according to the famous Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, a student of psychoanalysis best known for his work in the study of the formation of the cultural mythologies and archetypes, noted in his 1959 analysis of the extraterrestrial phenomenon, Flying Saucers, a Modern Myth of Things Seen in the Sky, that UFOs were not truly new to our species, but a fresh incarnation of an age-old mythological image. He referenced 16th-century pamphlets and ancient reports of fiery disks flying over Egypt in 1500 BC. In the heat of the Cold War, Young referred to UFOs as a living myth, stating, we have here a golden opportunity to see how a legend is formed and how in a different and dark time for humanity, a miraculous tale grows up of an attempted intervention by extraterrestrial heavenly powers. And this at the very time when human fantasy is seriously considering the possibility of space travel. Well, perhaps we should take this golden opportunity to analyze the specific tenets and practices of Heaven's Gate and the legend of Doe and Tea, which, as we mentioned before the break, Marshall Applewhite had outlined explicitly during his six-month jail sentence, influenced by a fusion of cutting-edge science fiction, New Ageism, and traditional mainstream Christianity. 
The importance that Christian doctrine played in attracting Heaven's Gate's followers can't be understated. Many of those who were drawn to the group had grown up in traditionally Christian households, but found great appeal in the scientific updates Applewhite and Nettles made to the faith of their upbringings. As Michael Conyers, a musician and former Heaven's Gate member from 1975 to 1988, describes, The message that Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles had was one that was talking to my Christian heritage, yet in a modern, updated way. Conyers described one example that appealed to him, that of the Virgin Mary, Jesus' mother, being impregnated on a spacecraft. Conyers said, Now, as unbelievable as that sounds, that was an answer that was better than just plain virgin birth. It was technical. It had physicality to it. Conyers saw Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite at their very first recruitment meeting in May 1975. A few months earlier, following Applewhite's release from jail, the two had sent dozens of flyers to churches and other spiritual centers from a hotel room in Ojai, California. They used Applewhite's jail pen cannon as their calling card. Among the few who inquired further was 72-year-old Clarence Klug, a mystic who invited his students to meet the two in Los Angeles at the home of Joan Culpepper, a psychic with the motto, Weird Turns Me On. Conyers described the crowd of about 80 people, including himself, as being mesmerized by the UFO, too. Applewhite and Nettles claimed to be extraterrestrials from another planet they called the Next Level, the place that traditional Christians interpret as heaven. They were looking for people to assist them in building the spacecraft that would take them to the next level. And as we touched on last week, they boldly claimed to be the two witnesses mentioned in Revelations 11, who had risen from the dead after being killed for spreading the word of God. They spoke of an evil race of space aliens, known as Luciferians, their version of Satan and his demons, who were keeping people tied to the human level by falsely representing themselves as God. But those who followed Marshall Applewhite, the second coming of Jesus incarnate, and Bonnie Nettles, the Heavenly Father, would be led along a path to salvation, or as they put it, a higher evolutionary level. And since they were actually from the next level, only Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite were able to provide the insight needed to get there, making anyone willing to follow along totally dependent on their leaders, Doe and T. I'll tell you about a kingdom level beyond here, and if you want to go there, then you have to follow me because I'm the guy who's got the key at the moment. And it requires that you, if you move into that evolutionary kingdom, that you leave behind everything of human ways, human behavior, human ignorance, human misinformation. The process required for entry to the next level was what Applewhite and Nettles called human individual metamorphosis, or just him for short. Him required that cult members relinquish any at all human attachments to gain entry to the next level. Such attachments included careers, family, friends, sexual relationships, material possessions, even their gender. Using the metaphor of the caterpillar, Applewhite contended that their transformation would be a biological change into a different species, casting his teachings as scientific truth in line with secular naturalism. It means that even the mind that you had as a human is aborted and the soul that was given to you is filled with next level information, next level mind, and a new creature is born. 
By the end of their meeting at Joan Culpepper's house, Applewhite and Nettles had approximately two dozen new recruits. Wow. It's amazing that anyone could be so persuaded by such strange ideas that they'd be willing to give up everything just to be able to follow Applewhite and Nettles. Mm -hmm. Well, Greg, according to writer and neuroscientist Sam Harris, it wasn't exactly Doe's ideas that his followers were attracted to, but Doe himself, who they found most compelling. In fact, in Harris's analysis, the tenets of Heaven's Gate and Doe's preachings possessed a total absence of compelling intellectual content. And of Applewhite, he said... This is not a brilliant person. This is not someone who's bowling you over with his ability to connect ideas or turn phrases. Well, then how is it that he and Nettles were so successful at recruiting members? If you recall, last week we talked about how Applewhite was a naturally gifted performer, a charismatic personality with a passion for singing, musical theater, and being under the spotlight. This was one factor that helped give Doe the mesmerism described by his followers, or what Bonnie Nettles' daughter Terry called this unbelievable power that made people feel privileged to be around them. But in analyzing videos of Applewhite's teachings, Harris concluded that the only clue to his powers of mesmerism is his quality of eye contact. He says Applewhite was a masterful gazer who rarely blinked and stared deep into the souls of those he spoke with directly. Eye contact is an incredibly powerful tool and a feature you find in gurus in general and people making heroic efforts to persuade, according to Harris. As with any form of storytelling, whether it's literature, TV, stand-up comedy, music, movies, etc., what is being said is often less important to engaging your audience than how you say it. Eye contact was at the core of Applewhite's execution in delivering his message persuasively. As Harris writes in his book, Waking Up, a person's eyes convey a powerful illusion of inner life. The illusion is true, but it is an illusion all the same. When we look into the eyes of another human being, we seem to see the light of consciousness radiating from the eyes themselves. That is why he and Nettles had to travel the country and speak in front of spiritual communities in person to recruit their followers. Had Nettles and Applewhite merely published their ideas in a book, it likely would have never caught on the way it did. So eye contact can be such a persuasive tool that one's ideas don't even have to be compelling to convince others? Well, not necessarily. Not everyone agrees with Harris's notion that the teachings of Heaven's Gate lacked any kind of compelling content. Yanya Lalich, a sociologist who studies cults, argues that what made Heaven's Gate's recruitment so successful was Applewhite and Nettles' eclectic mix of beliefs and how they deviate from typical New Age teachings, discussing literal spaceships within the framework of a familiar biblical context. Well, I suppose that brings us to the type of person that might be attracted to such ideas. My guess is that many of the people who joined Heaven's Gate were social outcasts who felt so alienated from the rest of the world that Applewhite and Nettles were able to offer them a community to belong to with other such social misfits. Actually, according to Harris, while that would be the obvious assumption to make, there's actually no evidence that that's true. Many Heaven's Gate members were intelligent people with careers and families. They hailed from diverse ethnic and religious backgrounds and ranged in age from 19 to 72, though most were in their 40s. Researchers have described most of the members as being longtime truth seekers and many former members of the fading hippie counterculture who had been searching for a spiritual path for them to find themselves. Many were already well-versed in New Age teachings, making it easier for Applewhite and Nettles to convert them. 
Among the recruits from the Los Angeles meeting at Culpepper's house was 19-year-old Leanne Fenton, a biology student in college on a scholarship. Fenton didn't feel a connection to the ancient rituals of her Catholic rearing, like she did with the immediate salvation offered by Applewhite and Nettles. Quote, I wanted to overcome the human condition in this life, not the next, she said. There was also 26-year-old Dick Jocelyn, a college graduate and former Navy officer, who was fascinated with the subconscious. He appreciated the two's simplicity and presentation, without the grandiose trappings of burning incense and flowing robes that was common among New Age preachers. He sensed that they could offer entry into the depths of the human mind. Well, obviously, anyone willing to join Heaven's Gate must be high in the personality trait of openness, a temperamental attribute correlated with creativity and liberal political views. However, not all the recruits hailed from far-left alt-religious backgrounds. One notable early member of Heaven's Gate was respected Republican real estate developer John Craig, who was running for Colorado House of Representatives at the time he joined in 1975. At six foot six, Craig was an athletic outdoorsman who enjoyed skiing with his six children, who ranged in age from eight to 18, and hunted elk with the then Colorado governor, John Love. He was one of the state's leading real estate developers and a member of the Chamber of Commerce, who had nearly won a seat in the state legislature in 1970. A military school graduate, he attended the University of New Mexico on a swimming scholarship before serving in the Korean War. According to his banker, R.W. Turner Jr., Mr. Craig was a perfect cowboy, always dressed like the Marlboro Man, pressed Levi, Stetson hat. Hollywood even took notice of his cowboy physique, and he was cast as the first horseman out of the boxcar in the famous train robbery scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. In the words of his eldest daughter, he was a successful businessman with six beautiful children, a great wife, and living in Durango, Colorado. It doesn't get much better than that. In the summer of 1975, the Craig family didn't think twice when John received a visit from Dale Mackey, his old college classmate who worked as a film editor at MGM Studios. Mackey was present at Nettles and Applewhite's initial recruitment meeting back in May and had been with the group ever since. One week after Mackey's visit, John's wife, Marianne, packed their six kids into the family car for a swim meet. When she returned home later that day, she found a note from John saying that he had gone on a business trip to Denver. In reality, John Craig had driven to Stapleton International Airport in downtown Denver to meet with Applewhite and Nettles. Before leaving with them, Craig had secretly signed over power of attorney to his lawyer and wife, who he never saw again. Marianne recalled, At the time, the group was saying that a UFO was going to arrive within three or four months and take them away. I thought, okay, when that doesn't happen, he'll come home. But he never did. He did, however, reach out to his daughter, who he invited to one of the group's meetings at the Denver YWCA two months after leaving. His daughter was not impressed. She was not allowed to sit next to her father, and he was not permitted to walk with her alone to the car afterwards. The family eventually hired a private investigator to track down their father. But as the investigator discovered, Applewhite and Nettles had expertly covered their tracks. And even if they could find him, John Craig had no intention of returning home. As his daughter recalls their encounter at the Denver recruitment meeting, Dad didn't appear to be a zombie at all. I was looking for a drug-induced brainwashing, but he was very articulate, very animated. He was my dad. The conscientious John Craig had become one of the Applewhites and Nettles' most active recruits. 
He helped print out flyers for the group and would rent halls for recruitment meetings where he would greet potential followers at the door. He also used his personal wealth he had accrued over the years to make significant financial contributions to the group. Once a Marlboro man, but still a natural-born leader, Craig would eventually become known within the group as Brother Logan and was appointed second in command to Nettles and Applewhite until he met his end with 38 other cult members in 1997. Despite their diverse cultural backgrounds, one thing that all of their followers seemed to have in common was this need for communal belonging that offered an alternative path to a higher existence and purpose without the shackles of institutionalized religion. So did these people really believe these ideas to be true, or were they in it for the communal aspect? Oh, there's no doubt that they believed it. Scholar Mark Gallanter points out that while Applewhite and Nettle's proposed ideas about the nature of existence may seem objectively delusional, many of the concepts they preached, when taken in isolation, are relatively accepted by mainstream society. For example, the idea that one possessed the ability to overcome their human-level thoughts, urges, and feelings in order to reach a higher evolutionary level is relatively similar to the ideas behind today's common practice of mindfulness meditation. The concept that one need not to be a slave to what Sam Harris calls the illusion of self is most prominently featured in the teachings of the Buddha, who was able to overcome his human level to reach nirvana, or a higher evolutionary level, as Doe and T might put it. Robert Balch and David Taylor reported in their essay, Making Sense of the Heaven's Gate Suicides, that those who joined the cult had accepted the tenets in isolation and were further intrigued with the way Applewhite and Nettles tied them together. Caroline Wessinger notes that even many of those who left Heaven's Gate still believed its ideas. Mm -hmm, Like Sharon Morgan, the cult's first member? Exactly. Sharon Morgan and others like her believed in Doe and T's teachings, but just could not adhere to the monastic discipline. If there's ever any doubt that these people really believed what they were preached, Just think about the fact that a good portion of their recruits were parents who abandoned their children to join the cult. Yeah, you really have to believe to be able to do that. Yeah, you do. And as word spread of the UFO 2, recruitment to the cult was finally taking off. In late 1975, Applewhite and Nettles, now going by Bo and Peep, held a recruitment meeting at a hotel in Waldport, Oregon. After the meeting, approximately 30 people who were in attendance sold off all their worldly possessions, said farewell to their loved ones, and seemingly vanished off the face of the earth with Bo and Peep. That incident, while a success for Applewhite and Nettles, didn't come without a backlash. It got Heaven's Gate its first taste of attention from the national media. On the CBS Evening News, Walter Cronkite reported, quote, A score of persons have disappeared. It's a mystery whether they've been taken on a so-called trip to eternity or simply been taken, end quote. Applewhite was troubled by the media coverage, which, not surprisingly, was almost entirely negative. News commentators and those who had formerly encountered the two on their grand tour ridiculed the group and their beliefs and leveled accusations of brainwashing against its leaders. The media dubbed the group as a UFO cult. Carl Jung's notion that flying saucers were a living myth was certainly proving to be true, as it became a core component of many emerging modern mythologies. As early as the 1930s, beginning with Guy Ballard's I Am activity, religious movements started incorporating a belief in the existence of UFOs and extraterrestrials into their codified doctrines. 
This emerging trend of UFO religions peaked during the late 70s, early 80s, alongside the growing cult of personalities and New Age belief systems of the time. That was when they started to become known as UFO cults. Other such groups include the Aetherius Society, Scientology, Rialism, the Nation of Islam, among others. But Vanessa, while all religions require a leap of faith, for many people there seems to be an additional such leap that's necessary to buy into the dogma of one of these UFO faiths. I guess, at least in mainstream religion, believers are looking for some transcendent wisdom within an ancient text that survived for thousands of years. But something as new and modern as a UFO cult just immediately seems to be difficult to take seriously as a truth for so many people. That's probably true, Greg. But that's also what makes such groups and belief systems so appealing to many others. Believers see these ideas as a more updated kind of religion, one that incorporates science and technology into their ideology. In fact, many so-called UFO religions reject any identification as a religious movement and prefer to be regarded as a scientific movement, such as the Unarius Academy, which seeks to empirically prove and provide substantial circumstantial evidence for the existence of extraterrestrials and UFOs. But those lines have been blurred with groups such as Scientology, which markets itself as a science but has fought legal battles to legitimize its status as a religion. But how exactly do these groups view the existence of extraterrestrials and UFOs? Are they like the kinds in science fiction movies that portray aliens as a threat to mankind? Just the opposite, actually. Like Heaven's Gate, most of these UFO cults see aliens as guardians of the human race, interested in the welfare of our species and the eventual incorporation of humans into a pre-existing ET civilization. UFO cults are also generally millenarian, meaning they believe that there will be a major transformation coming to society, after which things will never be the same. And at the rate that technology was evolving in the West when these cults emerged, it's no wonder millenarian ideas were attractive to so many. Hurt by the negative press coverage, Applewhite felt pressured to take the group underground. He and Nettles led their nearly 200-member crew on a nomadic journey across the country. Which, as we discussed last week, was Applewhite's M.O. Having been raised in a nomadic family all of his life, Applewhite had never been one to stay settled in any one place for too long. But this time, he was the shepherd leading the flock. The crew would sleep in tents and sleeping bags in public parks and camping grounds in the Rocky Mountains and Texas, often resorting to panhandling during the day. By early 1976, Applewhite and Nettles had finally settled on the names Doe and T. And what was once a loosely structured program was becoming increasingly more rigid. They weeded out those among them who weren't taking the practices as seriously as expected. That is, smoking marijuana or engaging in sexual conduct. Until they were down to 70 loyal devotees. Doe and T did everything in their power to keep their followers completely dependent on them. They continued to emphasize that they, and only they, were the source of truth. They feared close friendships forming within the group might lead to insubordination, so they split their group into smaller subgroups known as star clusters. Doe and T determined the makeup of each star cluster by putting people together who, by their assessment, were least likely to form attachments. Doe preached to his followers to be like pets in their subordination, meaning their only responsibility was to obey their leaders. Michael Conyers, one of the group's earliest devotees, says that the teachings were set up in such a way that discouraged people to think for themselves. Doe encouraged members to seek his advice and ask themselves, 
what would Doe do whenever faced with a decision, but almost exclusively communicated with them through a written letter or an assistant. And, of course, absolutely no contact with the outside world was permissible for members of the cult. Wow. Sounds pretty authoritarian, if you ask me. Yeah, absolutely. Which is what caused so many members to opt out and leave the group. But many members also didn't see it that way. They found Doe to be laid back and paternal. In his 2000 study of the group, Winston Davis says that Applewhite mastered the fine art of religious entertainment, noting that most members seem to enjoy their service to the group. Applewhite created a series of rituals meant to instill a sense of discipline in group members, consisting of arbitrary tasks, which Applewhite called games. One such activity that Balch outlines was called a tone, where class members were to remain isolated, focusing on a tone produced by a tuning fork at all times while doing other activities in order to keep the class focused on the next level while ignoring human thoughts. Another activity involved wearing racehorse-like blinders that only allowed members to see what was directly in front of them and not in their periphery. It doesn't sound like these games were particularly fun. Yeah, well, when you've been cut off from nearly all forms of human pleasure, just about any activity with a tangible goal can seem fun, as human beings are naturally goal-oriented. But they also had more relaxing activities. Doe enjoyed watching sci-fi TV programs with the group, including Star Trek, which he frequently referenced and appropriated phrases from, claiming that other extraterrestrials from the next level were communicating with him through the show. But other claims the two made required more proof. On one occasion in June 1976, T said she had been contacted by extraterrestrials on the next level. Doe and T gathered their disciples at Medicine Bow National Forest in southeastern Wyoming, claiming they would be visited by a UFO that evening. Not surprisingly, the UFO never appeared. At daybreak, Nettles apologized to the group. Well, I feel like I have egg on my face, announcing that the visit had been canceled. But despite the letdown, the faith of most followers remained intact, and in some cases grew even stronger. This is typical for members of groups that predict specific dates for UFO landings or the apocalypse. When such predictions fail, believers will claim that their unfulfilled prophecy was either a misreading of certain portents or merely a test of faith. Such tests of faith were all part of Doe and T's manipulation over the group. Another tactic used by Doe was to almost never order any of his followers to do anything directly. He would instead express his preferences and appeared to offer his disciples a choice. For example, if he heard that one of his disciples may have been secretly smoking marijuana, he might tell them something along the lines of, you can either do drugs or you can overcome your humanness and enter the next level. This is what Yanya Lalich refers to as the illusion of choice. As strict as their lifestyle was, it only got more dictatorial. In the late 1970s, the group received a large sum of money, which was believed to be the inheritance or donation of a former member. This allowed the group to rent or purchase homes wherever they dwelt. In the homes, members cohabitated with their star cluster. Within the house, Doe and T paired members into platonic male-female relationships, known as check partners, to examine followers' obedience. Michael Conyers recalls that nearly everything was scrutinized. He once made waffles for breakfast, and his check partner had to make sure that each waffle was the appropriate size and that he poured the correct amount of syrup onto his breakfast. While Michael preferred using a downward motion with his razor when shaving, members were told to only shave upwards with their razor. Now, this kind of rigorous monastic lifestyle caused many members to leave the cult. 
But as we mentioned, Doe and T were more interested in quality over quantity when it came to membership. But those that stayed were known as the class and were to prepare for their graduation to the kingdom level above human. Members were made to wear uniforms that would conceal their human form and more specifically their gender. All members were considered genderless and androgynous. Sex was considered far too human. But unlike a monastery with nuns and priests living in separate quarters, men and women lived side by side within the cult. Having check partners of the opposite sex was done with the intention of members developing the awareness of the human qualities each person had to overcome. They had to develop techniques to suppress their sexual urges. And if they had such thoughts, this was known as a slippage, which was to be reported to the check partner. A slippage was a setback and meant that one had more work ahead of them to reach the next level. Though, as we touched on last week, at least seven members, including Doe, took their dedication to abstinence to the ultimate extreme and had themselves medically castrated. That was the straw that broke the camel's back from Michael Conyers, who realized he didn't have the kind of dedication that was expected to overcome his human-level qualities. But living in houses, as opposed to campgrounds, gave the group a kind of legitimacy that made Doe more paranoid than ever. He feared he and T would be assassinated by the government for spreading their gospel and worried that the law enforcement was cracking down on the group's activities and presence in any given place. Doe and T came up with several elaborate security measures as a precaution. Conyers recalled that they would assign designated people who were permitted to leave the house to buy groceries or run errands. So while there may have been over 15 people living in a house at any given time, it appeared to neighbors that there were only two or three people who were coming and going. Nevertheless, if Doe ever even suspected that someone in the neighborhood was catching on to them, the entire group would pick up and move somewhere else. But as strict and regimented as their lifestyle may have been, the doctrine was very much a living document and open to change. Over the years, Doe and T made several modifications to both Heaven's Gate practices and beliefs. They incorporated more New Age concepts, such as the walk-in. According to the 2001 book, Odd Gods, New Religions and the Cult Controversy by James R. Lewis, when they first began, Applewhite and Nettles taught their followers that they were extraterrestrial beings. However, after the notion of walk-ins became popular with the New Age subculture, the two changed their tune and began describing themselves as extraterrestrial walk-ins. For clarification, a walk-in is similar to something akin to possession, a spiritual entity occupying a body that has been vacated by its original soul. Doe and T morphed this idea into what they call an extraterrestrial walk-in, the idea that a walk-in could only be done by someone from another planet. Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles were not Doe and T. Doe and T were merely using their bodies. Hmm. But why should that even matter? What was the point in making such a modification? Good question, Greg. For Applewhite and Nettles, this gave them a clean slate in the eyes of their followers. It allowed them to relinquish any kind of responsibility for how they acted in the past. Living a new life with this concept allowed them to, in Lewis's words, erase their human personal histories as the histories of souls who formerly occupied the bodies of Applewhite and Nettles. But it wasn't only doctrine that changed. By 1980, Nettles and Applewhite began to loosen their restrictions over the group's 80 members. They were permitted to work their jobs, most of which involved computers or auto mechanics. By 1982, they allowed members to call their families on occasion. By 1983, they permitted members to have a short visit with their families on Mother's Day. 
But let's not mistake this for an act of kindness. This was another act of manipulation masterminded by Doe and T. The followers were told to tell their families that they were away studying computers in a monastery. The intention of these vacations was to placate the families of their disciples by demonstrating that they stayed with the group by their own free will. John Craig's wife, Marianne, remembers his visit home as being more akin to a recruiting session than a family reunion. She said, I believe the leaders sent everyone back to their families to see if they had overcome their addictions and attachments. It was a test on their part. But the most dark and drastic of changes were made to the group after Doe modified the way one was able to reach the next level. That came out of necessity in 1985 when Bonnie Nettles, T, the Heavenly Father, passed on from this world, and as Doe explained, ascended to the next level. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. Now, our story continues. It was cancer that took Bonnie Nettles' eye in 1983. Two years later, in 1985, it took her life. As one might imagine, Applewhite was absolutely devastated by the death of his partner, who he believed to be his soulmate. The person he had begun the whole project with was now gone. Those who have listened to our other podcast, Serial Killers, may be familiar with the term folie à deux, which in the context of serial killers refers to a duo who, on their own, would not be killers, but together they bring out the worst in each other. But this is actually an updated version of the term, which was originally meant to describe the psychological phenomena that psychologist Mark Gallanter believes affected Nettles and Applewhite. In this context, folie à deux is a psychiatric syndrome in which one partner draws the other into a shared system of delusion. But without Nettles, Applewhite didn't have anyone to share in his delusion. Mm -hmm. Except, of course, his class of loyal followers. As you mentioned, Applewhite's devastation over Nettles' death sent him spiraling into a deep depression. He started experiencing a crisis of faith. Had Nettles passed away a decade earlier, there likely would have never been a Heaven's Gate— but by this point, his followers were so loyal and believed so fully that Doe was the truth that they encouraged him to continue on with his mission and lifted him out of the depths of his despair. But this also left Applewhite with a problematic contradiction within the doctrine. Applewhite had previously taught his followers that they would be physically lifted from this world by a UFO that would bring them on to the next level. But now, with the corporeal body of Bonnie Nettles still on this earth, Applewhite was forced to come up with an explanation. He now said that the ascension was not physical, but spiritual, and that T's spirit had ascended to the spacecraft headed to the next level, where she would receive a new body. Surprisingly, this kind of contradiction and blatant change to the doctrine in the wake of T's death only caused one person to leave the group as a result. But what you have to take into consideration is that many of these people had been with the group for almost a decade. They were happy and found purpose and wanted to believe. Not only that, but Applewhite's new explanation for how one could reach the next level was actually conveniently compatible with the incorporation of walk-ins into his doctrine that he had made a few years earlier. If they were willing to believe in the idea of extraterrestrial walk-ins, then the idea of Nettles spiritually ascending from her physical body isn't too much of a stretch from there. You know, intelligent human beings should realize that everything has their cycle. They have their season. They have their beginning. They have their end. They have cycles. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished 
spaded under and have another chance to serve as a garden for another human civilization. Nettle's death had an obvious impact on the state of Applewhite's mental health. His tone had changed. He increasingly emphasized the role of satanic Luciferians in controlling mankind to sin and spoke of the impending apocalypse, comparing the earth to an overgrown garden that was to be recycled and reused by another race of beings when the human beings were wiped out. While Applewhite had attempted to stick to scientific concepts in the cult's early years, after Nettles it seemed to be more religious, with Applewhite really making the core significance of the group about submission to authority, his authority. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. But Nettles' death caused the paranoia-prone Applewhite to become even more suspicious that people were out to kill him. And starting in the late 80s, the group went even further underground than ever before. They kept such a low profile that many of those who had become aware of the cult through media coverage had assumed that they had crumbled and ceased to exist. Though hundreds of people had come and gone from the group over the years, by the early 90s, membership had dwindled to as low as 26 people at one point. However, several of their members were computer programmers and engineers, knowledgeable and interested in the emerging technology known as the World Wide Web. One such member was Rio D'Angelo, who joined the group in the early 90s. He came to understand the cult's teachings in terms that were familiar to him. The soul is the software and the body is the hardware, he recalled learning. These computer-savvy members within the group started a small business called A Higher Source, which designed web pages for other businesses and organizations, including Heaven's Gate. With membership dwindling, Doe was feeling a sense of urgency to go public once again. Using the money generated from A Higher Source, the group paid to broadcast a 12-part video series via satellite featuring Doe preaching his gospel. The lecture series generally reflected the document that the group wrote out in 1988, which laid forth the updated version of their codified dogma, except they added the concept of a universal mind, which followers of Doe were able to hear. Doe then placed a $30,000 full-page ad in USA Today in May of 1993. In the ad, he called the group Total Overcomers Anonymous and warned the public of an impending catastrophic judgment that was to befall the Earth. As a result of the ad, at least 20 former members rejoined the cult. That and another series of video lectures made in 1994 led the group to double in size from what it was at the beginning of the decade. Many of these new followers had come across the group's website, as Heaven's Gate was gaining a reputation among the emerging internet subculture. Among the new wave of recruits during this time were Yvonne and Stephen Hill, who joined Heaven's Gate just six months before the suicides. Stephen was a frequent surfer of the web in its earliest incarnation. An African-American couple, the Hills had been the victims of a series of anonymous attacks, making their lives intolerable. But Heaven's Gate offered a way out. When Stephen reached out to the group via email, they were sympathetic to his plight and offered to help. It was Stephen who wanted to leave and join the group, but Yvonne, his wife of seven years, didn't want her husband to leave her alone. The Hills had four children, including a pair of twins that were just one month old, who they left with family members before joining Heaven's Gate. Looking back, it's just ridiculous, Stephen lamented, but we did it. We lost our perception of what to do. We told them mommy and daddy are leaving. 
Upon entry into the cult, Stephen and Yvonne were separated into different star clusters, needing to overcome their attachment to one another. I've been in the class, will be six months Sunday. I think I may be the last one up to this point to have come to be with Tiendo at this time. Very happy to, to be here. While Stephen was growing exhausted of the restrictive lifestyle, Yvonne had become enamored with the cult's environment. According to Stephen, Yvonne had completely changed after joining the group, but was happy as could be. After just three months, Stephen left and returned to his home in Cincinnati. He expected that Yvonne would join him in reuniting their family, but she had quickly grown attached to her new way of life. Uh, the only thoughts that I have is the preparation that I've made to separate from the vehicle. Leave it all behind. There's nothing here for me. I want to um, look forward, keep my eye on Tiendo. That's my path. The next time Stephen would see his wife would be in a photograph of the 39-member graduating class of Heaven's Gate after the suicides. Everyone's quick to condemn. I mean, they don't even look see anymore. They just see a tiny little aspect of someone else and they quickly determine that they're so brilliant that they can judge it as being not what they're looking for, worthless, some radical movement, some movement that certainly is beneath them. As Doe's teachings became more accessible to the public due to the internet, he received even more criticism, which he took to heart. The critics were his greatest fear about re-emerging into the public's eye. Falling deeper into his depressive state, Applewhite began speaking of suicide. He explained that in order to ascend, everything human, including the body, must be sacrificed. Just as Rio D'Angelo was taught, the hardware was merely a means for the software they were using. In October of 1996, the group rented a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, California, where they made several videos offering viewers their final chance to evacuate the Earth. That year, after learning of the discovery of the approaching comet Hale-Bopp, Applewhite came to believe that Nettles was on board a spacecraft trailing the comet, and he wished to reunite with her on their way to the next level. In the coming months, the remaining 38 members of Heaven's Gate recorded their exit statements, where they recounted their time with the group, praised the leadership of Doe, and said farewells to family and friends before their ascension. Remember how you felt when we were there? Remember, you know, what it was like to work with us and to be with us? And you probably do better off trusting that rather than whatever information you run across on the TV. I'm sure there's going to be some stuff come out about this that... Um, can't give the perspective that you would have. So trust your own feeling rather than what you hear from someone else. I mean, that would, that'd be my primary advice to give. But it's so plain and simple and real and true for us. And we know it. You may not know it, which is okay. We have no fear. We're uh, proud and looking forward to what's ahead. And we believe all our classmates feel the same way. This is uh, Hudson. I mean, this is, this is the answer to everything. You know, these, these flesh vehicles, I mean, if you use the analogy of a car, um, and, you know, people may keep their cars for a long time before they finally wear out and they clunk out and they die on them and, you know, they go and get another car. Or some people, they say, well, you know, here's a newer model, it's much nicer, and, and uh, this one, you know, doesn't quite perform the way I could, and I'd like to move into this new car. So get rid of the old one, get a new one. I mean, that's about all we're talking about. It's not a big deal. And I'm embarrassed that I can't express 
uh, without getting emotional, how good I feel about what I'm doing and how good I feel about being here and being given this opportunity to go to the next level. Just the opportunity is the gift is just it's overwhelming is the only word that I can come up with now. This isn't a troubling circumstance. Don't take it as that. It's just a gateway, just a doorway. So T and O, we owe everything to them. We're right. going to lay these vehicles down here shortly, and we're going to. What we're doing is we're going home. We're going home to those individuals who sent us here to do this task, and this is the happiest and joyous thing that you can possibly imagine. We're choosing to do this. I think this planet has become a very, very hideous place. They take control of you from the cradle to the grave. You have no choices except when the next level offers you some choices. And most of the time, you're herded around like animals. You have no choices. What they put in front of you are your choices. I don't like what they put in front of me. I'm making the final choice here. The choice is out of their hands, what I'm going to do from here on. That's the way I'd like to leave it. Goodbye. As Sam Harris points out, one notable aspect of these tapes is that the Heaven's Gate members are well aware of how irrational and drastic their actions will be taken by loved ones and the general public. But what is patently obvious is that they're happy about what they're about to do. Anytime you hypnotize a person to jump off of the Golden Gate Bridge or kill your family or kill yourself or anybody they tell you to kill, and they do it, the person responsible for that the person that programmed them to do it in the first place. In the subsequent analysis of the Heaven's Gate suicides, many commentators, such as psychologist Margaret Singer, believed that the media's classification of Doe's work as brainwashing to be insufficient, lacking in the nuance of the process that followers underwent. Bach and Taylor noted that Doe and T had steered clear of pressure tactics, only seeking out the most devoted of followers. Lalich postulates that the willingness of these people to commit suicide stemmed from a strong sense of dependence on Applewhite, that his followers were not adequately suited for life without their leader. Many commentators have also distinguished the Heaven's Gate suicides from other mass suicides, such as Jonestown, in that no children were involved. That was because Doe required members to be at least 18 years old to make their decision to join. On March 26, 1997, police discovered the bodies of all 39 members who took their life. Today, Heaven's Gate has a website which lays out their history and beliefs. The site is operated by two believers and former followers of Doe who opted out of the suicide but continue to take questions from the general public sent to them through the website. To this day, the Heaven's Gate suicides remain one of the most strange, mysterious, and tragic events stemming from cult activity in recent years. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. 
Join us next Tuesday as we delve into the twisted psychology behind the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Donnie Goffstein and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 